Welcome to the Creative Diaries. Today I'm here with Russell Darling. Russell has had years of experience as a computer graphics supervisor for feature film, visual effects and animation. He's credited on over 20 movies including Oscar winner Ex Machina, Cloverfield, Godzilla and Star Wars. Thanks for being here today, Russell. Oh, thanks, Kira. It's nice to be here. I wanted to start off on what got you into films in the first place. Oh, wow. That's a good question. So I think as a kid, I was just so interested in visual effects and, you know, not even really understanding what they were, but I loved kind of sci-fi and fantasy and I was really into Star Wars, you know, the original, original Star Wars. And I just read all the magazines about how effects were made and model making and all that. So it was really just the love of of effects and kind of wanting to kind of pursue that, even though I didn't really know quite how. I mean, that, that was a bit of a journey to figure that out. But that was that was the big inspiration, I think, is just the love of effects. Yeah. And so many people so far in the podcast have mentioned Star Wars. Um, Sam Clements oh. in the first episode said, I want to become an actor because I wanted to be a Jedi. Liam McAvoy as well also said. So all these people have been influenced by the Star Wars movies. That, that is really interesting because I think a lot of people with a visual effects background, they would say that because it's kind of an iconic film in that sense. I mean, everybody loves it for various reasons, but I hadn't heard that from maybe an actor's standpoint or something. That, that's quite interesting. That must have been amazing, like the fact that you got to then work on a Star Wars film years later. What one was it you worked on? Well, I actually amazingly started my career working for George Lucas, you know, right out of bat, you know, essentially I kind of found my way to kind of working for him. And then, yeah, of course, ended up working on a couple of the Star Wars prequels while working at his uh, studio, Industrial Light Magic. So I worked on Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace, and Episode Two, The uh, Attack of the Clones. And when you were saying it was a journey learning about the visual effects... How did you begin that journey? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, it was kind of an extension of what I was talking about, where I would just read everything that I could, you know, about it. And there were certain magazines, like this. there's this magazine called Cinefix that really had an amazing connection to the industry, and people would just really dive deep into effects and films and just talk about techniques and things like that. But, you know, I didn't go to film school, so I... I was sort of going down a different path um, because first of all I didn't know film was going to even be an option for me so I went with my other love which is working for NASA so I was going ah. to study uh, you know more on the aerospace side of things you know from the technology computer science and so forth so that was ultimately where I had my eye was basically working for NASA so it was instead of working on the fantasy of space I was going for something a bit more realistic when I had an opportunity to look at options and I thought well why not just kind of go for it now of course I didn't have a film background so one of the things that I did do was study filmmaking through essentially DVD extras now when I started there wasn't DVD extras there was Laserdisc now Laserdisc were far out of fashion by the time even I got around to it but they were so cheap so I could buy all these Laserdiscs and they had all this amazing content it was essentially like a film school on disc so I learned a lot about that and that kind of gave me some confidence that I, at least I knew some of the essentials of you know the crafts of visual effects in a certain way without having any experience or kind of studying it formally. That's actually one of the things that I find really interesting speaking about director's cuts because nowadays it's all like online platforms and I also find it really interesting that you so everyone that hasn't gone to film school has said they had a mentor but they've named like specific people it seemed throughout the years they've had different mentors but people that really pushed up their career did you have someone like that for you 
No, I didn't have a mentor. I, I kind of, it would have been nice to have one, but, uh, you know, as I was saying, I don't, didn't really know anybody in the industry. I, I have no family connections. I have no, you know, I just didn't know anybody in the industry at whatsoever. So yeah, it was just my own kind of self-motivation really to kind of pursue it and see, see what I could do. And also just not having the fear that there was a barrier in my way, you know, it's like, so whatever, if I haven't done this or I don't have connections, there's no reason you shouldn't at least try. Yeah. I just kind of, it was, it was just me and kind of what I wanted to do. There was no guarantee of, of success most definitely, but it certainly worked out. And what were the steps between you saying, I want to try this and then working with George Lucas? Oh, right. Yeah. So I finished university and uh, I was going to school on the East coast in Florida and I from the West. So I wanted to go back to the West to be closer to family and stuff. So I was working in San Francisco at something completely unrelated to both uh, NASA and film. And I thought, well, you know, San Francisco, that's kind of the home base of Lucasfilm and Industrial Light Magic. And I wonder, I wonder what sort of jobs they are hiring for. And I, I saw, actually, it wasn't even online. They didn't even have a website at that point. Websites did exist, but they didn't have one. Um, <laughs> they, uh, they had like a classified ad or something for a job. And it was something that it was a technical job. And it seemed quite senior and I'm just out of university, but I was like, ah, well, you know, I'll just go for it. I, I, I feel like, you know, with, with my motivation and, and, and background, I can kind of spin it. No, you know, obviously not going to make anything up, but prove to them that I'm the right person for this, this job at this company. One way or another, you know, I, I just did a blind application and said, mm -hmm. Hey, I'm, you know, just the usual way you would apply for a job is how I did it. And I got called in for the interview and that process was quite interesting because imagine you know, walking through the doors and I see one of the original costumes of Darth Vader and, you know, there's R2-D2 just like just all these amazing film props and costumes and paintings just all over. And it was just, it was almost overwhelming because, you know, these days, most effects are done on a computer. So there's hardly any even physical representation anymore. But, you know, Industrial Light Magic had been in the business so long. And they were involved in so many groundbreaking films, including the original Star Wars films and a lot of Steven Spielberg films and so forth. There was just artifacts everywhere. Um, so I was really excited and the interviews went really well and they gave me a studio tour and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I've nailed this. I've nailed this. Not trying to be overly confident, but I, I, I felt good about it. And then I had this, the final interview, it was like eight people I think I interviewed with. There was this guy who I felt was just like really difficult and really hard on me and asking me questions that I can't imagine anybody would be able to answer. And they were technical questions. So I just kind of, you know, felt like, oh, I got torpedoed in that. And I just was so devastated because, you know, I felt like I didn't answer what he wanted me to answer. And it was just a really bad way to kind of end that process. And so I left that, you know, left the studio quite dejected and feeling like my dream has been destroyed. You know, I was so close. But what I did to recover from that was essentially, you know, rather than just stress out about it, what can I do to make myself feel better? So I, I remembered everything he asked me, and I basically wrote an email that answered all these really detailed technical questions, because if I were in an actual work situation, I would have access to reference. I would be able to kind of deal with it in different ways. So essentially, that's what I did. And then I emailed it, not even to him, to somebody that he worked with that I had their card, because I didn't have his card. And I kind of just went away. And then I think a couple months later, I got this phone call and it was the guy, the difficult guy who said, I was really impressed by what you did. And I just been promoted and I want to hire you. 
And so it was the last person in the world that I thought would want to hire me. And it was really just because of how I dealt with that situation that nobody had ever done before. And that was what got me in the door. That's amazing. Do you think you got uh, your creativity off someone from your family? I certainly think that there might uh, be a bit of that that comes from my family. Yeah, I, I think, you know, so my, my, my job in film has always been a lot of technical um, there's a lot of technical aspects to it, but there's also the creative side, and I kind of ride uh, that line between the two. So it sounds like I'm quite technical, but you know, there's there's certainly the the artistic side. So my my grandfather was quite an artist with um, he would do like comic strips and stuff like that, and I'd seen a lot of his work. It was really kind of really an interesting style that he had, and and my father actually had something quite similar and I don't know if they you know he taught him or, or what but there's that I mean that isn't really kind of going any anything like filmmaking but there's you know just just kind of an artistic kind of eye and being able to kind of draw mm. caricatures and things like that that's um, what um Leonardo DiCaprio's father did so oh, maybe really? there's a link oh. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea so yeah there's a lot about about that but uh you know I I think my creativity surprisingly again nothing to do with the visual effects is more in in writing so i've always you know enjoyed creative writing and you know writing poetry short stories whatever all throughout school you know even as a little kid kind of really that was where i kind of developed my creativity was in in that did you have anyone like teacher wise that encouraged you um i think one thing that and i can't remember exactly how it worked out because I was quite young but there was some I was just in a regular class and I do remember them you know liking what I was doing and that particular school was pretty amazing because they had some more advanced classes even for quite young kids that if you were really you know if they really wanted to help you develop in certain areas like you know science or math or you know whatever arts they actually had special classes for that so they pulled me aside and they put me in this creative writing class you know and that was pretty amazing because it was like oh and we got to write our own book so we actually not sort of self-published you know the equivalent of that so I wrote a short story as a kid and you know illustrate it and we bound it all that so just d different things like that that really kind of developed it and supported that side of me and that was really exciting unfortunately I can't remember any of the teachers names but uh that that idea of being able to kind of do that and express myself that way at, at such a young age in school was really really great on the flip side did you have anyone discouraging you from you know your dreams say working for nasa or or in the film industry you know i i can't really think that anybody discouraged me i think that and the same side didn't encourage me either i think a lot of people that don't know anybody in the industry do see it as kind of a you know, you're reaching for the stars sort of thing. And, uh, but I, I, I think as, you know, somebody that is from America, you know, there, there's sort of this, this mentality that, you know, you can do anything. And, and, uh, and I know that that can go two different ways. One, if it doesn't work out, you know, maybe that makes you quite upset that, you know, you weren't given what you were promised. But at the same time, I, I, I like the idea of being optimistic. And so even if nobody's directly encouraging me and maybe in that specific way, just those ideas of developing your dreams and your ideas and all that. And it's it's a great if you're surrounded with the right kind of people, you know, it's a great way to kind of make something of that and make something of yourself. So when you got this job with or for George Lucas, what was the title and what did it entail? Oh, <laughs> something extremely boring, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> it was, uh, so the the job title, I think, was uh, 
senior systems programmer. So essentially what sounds just like a, I'm out of school with a computer science degree and I can program for you. Now, it sounds very generic, but again, fortunately it was for a part of the company that was developing digital video technology for um, the studio. So at first it was used just for digital dailies and things like that. And I really, you know, with, with a team there that involved video engineers and a lot of, you know, all technical people, but were serving the entire, you know, creative side of the studio. Um, but it turned to something really exciting and groundbreaking when I can't say I know the day, but there was came a point where George Lucas said, you know, he wants to make an entirely digital film and he wants an entirely end-to-end -end digital pipeline, meaning you, you shoot it digitally you have a full production pipeline and you output and you put it in the cinemas digitally. Now these days you, you think, oh, of course that that's, everybody does that. But you have to think back less than 20 years ago, that actually wasn't possible. That wasn't a thing. The tools and technology didn't exist. So him kind of laying that down and saying, this is what I want to do. And, you know, he's not necessarily going to invent the technology, but he knows to bring on the right people and partner with the right people. So I got to be involved in that, and that was really exciting mm. because, um, especially from the camera standpoint, you know, I got to collaborate on that project with big players, you know, and we essentially invented a lot of different things for digital filmmaking, including, you know, having a piece of the camera, the production pipeline, and eventually the, the playback in the cinema. We had our own versions of all of that before probably most people in most companies it's hard to say who exactly invented what when i can't lay claim to that but uh <laughs> certainly we were on the bleeding edge and kind of one of the the pioneers especially at that level of hollywood filmmaking because hollywood is very risk averse and they you know why would i try this thing that's unproven when i can use film and mm. i can do this and i can do that you know they're, they're not gonna risk their movie on it but george was willing to do that and how long did you work there uh, I worked at Industrial Light and Magic for seven years. Okay. So it sounds like it was one of your first experiences of a collaborative process. Yeah, most certainly. I, I, I think really, again, I was just fresh out of university and, you know, everybody has some form of like group projects and things that you do. And then you're putting in a professional environment and there's very few, I think, professional environments that you work solo unless you're like a you know, a journalist or some, you know, painter or something like that. But I mean, in a studio setting. So yeah, I was working with some very experienced people. And, you know, I was a little, you know, sometimes felt out of my depth. As I said, I just kind of was able to kind of get into this role, but professionally unexperienced and, and also not in filmmaking or visual effects or anything like that. And, you know, it was interesting getting used to certain personalities and kind of different environments and, you know, all kinds of different variables. So but, uh, you know, it was it was interesting. What kind of things did you work on? Because I don't know how it works. If you get something at the beginning, you obviously get the actors running around. And then do they tell you what to put in? Well, OK, so I'll break down sort of a, a very high level breakdown of, of visual effects and kind of how that process works. And, you know, haven't gotten into it yet, but, you know, my, my career does, you know, go other ways where I got more involved in various other aspects of uh, visual effects and filmmaking. But to walk you through the process of visual effects, it actually is something that you start with a script and you go pretty much all the way through to the very end and in, involved in a very long time on the film. Actors come in for their, their parts and maybe the com composer will come in again in a certain part towards the end. But visual effects, you're involved in, uh, in the film for quite a long time. The script comes in and as a visual effects studio, you generally bid on 
the job. So there's, okay, let's say there's, you know, monsters that come out of these spaceships that, you know, attack New York City or whatever. So various companies will read that script. They'll look at what the script says. They'll break it down and say, okay, this is the work that will be required to do this. Come up with some estimate and bid on the film. So let's say we, we get the film because they like our bid the best, they like our creative ideas the best, and we get the film. So what we do then is have a small crew that goes out during principal photography, works with the director and the cinematographer to actually film the scenes that we're working on. We gather data where we kind of help collaborate to make sure those are done in, in the best way to produce the best end result. And that can be green screen, but it doesn't have to be. These days, a lot of techniques are so sophisticated that you don't always have to put green screens behind something or somebody to add the effects. It's done both ways still. Then it comes in and the footage, and it, when it was originally done in film, it was scanned for the digital kind of work. But these days, digital digital is quite common. And there's various teams that are involved. The whole visual effects process involves a lot of different talents and a lot of different disciplines to actually do different parts of the work. So there's there's different artists that just do pieces of the effect. So for instance, if it's a monster, you have one kind of artist that designs it or works off somebody's design that creates the digital version of it, that creates the look of it, that animates it. So you have lots of different people involved. Then you eventually render it out again, print it back to film or digitally output it and it ends up in the film. So, um, but that whole process is, is really quite intricate and time consuming, um, especially these days when so many films have so, so much effects work. Okay, so have you seen, has there been someone that creates the monsters and you thought, oh God, that's horrible. <laughs> have, you, have you had experiences where you know something? Because visual effects, from my very limited experience watching it in the cinema, is either really amazing or really kind of like, oh God, are you, are you talking about the design of it or the writing or the uh, just the execution where it, it's not convincing? I think the the design and the execution are some of the main points because I'm, I'm going to make <laughs> a really bad example of, I don't know, Venom, I guess, where in, in terms of, well, that was the writing. I think that could have been a really great movie. The monster looked good. The, the way it was executed was, well, not believable, but it seemed kind of realistic in the context. And that would be one where I kind of thought, OK, that was the writing. But then there are several movies, which <laughs> Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man, the second one. When I was a child, I was kind of like, that's amazing. And I rewatched it. And there's so many flaws in the put together where you can see things or things didn't match up. Yeah. And I, I wondered if you guys had more of a, an idea at the beginning if something was working or not or are you kind of like the actor where you have to wait and see when you see it in the cinema well you know you you'll, you'll see it before it's in the cinema but the challenge i think is that again everybody assumes that everything's going to be perfect and that everything works perfectly which it doesn't you know you're you're con constrained by time by money by technology um so those are at play so the earlier films you know technology and certain techniques weren't as developed um or there just wasn't the time or the budget to refine them well enough so there's all kinds of different reasons why something may not come out well besides writing this is a different matter but i mean from from the visual effects standpoint there's there's that so you can look at older films and say why why was that bad i think on newer films you know it, it's a bit more refined or it can be a bit more refined, especially for big budget films. Um, sometimes there's just odd designs, you know, and that's 
lot of times a creative choice that mm. whoever is designing that yeah. work is it's just creative choices i think one of the things one of the issues that i have with a lot of films these days um, is that they are more about spectacle and they aren't really spending enough time telling the story i think that's why a lot of those kind of films aren't as good that they think the audience members just want to see all this the spectacle that they haven't seen before or taking it to another level when a film you know that i worked on that i was quite happy how it used effects and how um the story came together was ex machina because you know that was a relatively low budget film and it had one character who was without you know everybody should know spoiler alert is a is a robot but you know that that robot could have been done any number of different ways right so we've all seen all kinds of different kinds of robots but it was you know it was done in a way that wasn't trying to show off but did still look really interesting and, and com convincing i think as as a robot and compelling but not in your face trying to show off it was just it suited the story that was meant to be told and you know and it was restrained and it ended up winning the oscar over star wars and various other films because I think people did respect how, you know, even for a visual effects Oscar, it's not a huge amount of visual effects, but it's visual effects used in a way that services the story and is done in a way that really works well. Again, without trying to toot our own horn too much, but um, I would like to see more of that. I mean, it's more the exception than the rule, but I think those those scenarios, if people look at that and say, okay, let's, let's have more of that, and I think you, you get a much better result. And what else have you worked on throughout the years? Is there some stuff that you're really, really proud of? There are things that I've worked on that I'm proud of that maybe the film wasn't great or people think of the film as not great. It, but I, I think any film I work on, I generally get something out of it for myself that I find satisfying, whether it's the people I'm working with or we've kind of developed some new technique or, you know, just, just things like that that mm. I really enjoyed. So, I, I mean, I can... You know, Ex Machina, I can point to that one, which was, I didn't spend a huge amount of time on that. It was quite a small film that I got involved with, but um, quite enjoyed it. Another thing I've got involved with was sort of a side project where I did an independent film called Repo Chick. Now, of course, nobody would have heard of this probably, but it was uh, written and directed by Alex Cox. It's a sort of sequel to Repo Man, which he also wrote and directed. I guess these days you would say it was more of a direct-to-DVD thing. But for me, the thing that was really interesting, especially being an independent film, I got to do so much more. So got involved in how are we going to shoot this on a low budget, you know, and it's all green screen, and what kind of camera technique should we use? What kind of camera should we use? Um, we got to do camera tests. And in fact, I stepped in for the camera test in one of the roles. I did my part. We did a little test on it to kind of say, yes, we can do this. And then... They said, "Hey, we liked what you did. Would you like? Uh, we'd like to offer you a small part as well." So uh, I got to do that. It cool. was quite fun. Um, but then, yeah, just just every bit of that, every piece of that, and kind of being involved in that was really satisfying in a really interesting way. And everybody that was involved with that, for the most part, actually came from working on quite big Hollywood films. Like the producers, I think, were involved somewhat in Transformers you know what I mean they, they're all professionals but everybody came together because they um, you know just enjoy working together and they knew Alex and kind of made something of it so that that's kind of fun when when that happens I really enjoyed that that experience you know even if very few people have actually seen it but uh, it was it was really good for me 
going chronologically after working um, with George Lucas after the seven years, what was next for you? So after seven years, uh, so after basically Star Wars Episode Two came out, I went to work for Tippett Studio. So Tippett Studio is quite interesting because it's a studio that was founded by Phil Tippett. And if you don't know that name, you would definitely know his work. He's He was the original stop-motion animator and kind of creature um, guy from the early Star Wars films. So from the even the first Star Wars film, he did all the stop-motion animation of the chess pieces, you know, in the Millennium Falcon. He did the... Um, the Snow Walkers and Tauntauns and Empire, you know, he did a lot of, you know, the, the Jabba stuff and the Rancor monster in, in uh, Return of the Jedi. You know, obviously he worked with various artists as well, but, you know, he was involved in all three of those in various ways with creatures and animation and so forth. So he went off and founded his own studio. It's a much smaller studio, really creative place. I, I have to say of all the visual effects studios I've worked at, that was probably the most fun, creative place of all of them. The people there, just so friendly, and it's a family atmosphere, and it's very small, so you get to know everybody. And they actually have a stage where there's physical things, and they'll do projects on that stage. Um, just very social. Everybody would go out at various times, and they just really, you know, beyond the work itself, you know, having those sort of connections with the people you work with, it's mm-hmm. it's pretty amazing. And I, I can't say that that's been replicated anywhere else. Various levels. But, um, you know, that was really an incredible experience. And he is just such a creative force and really an interesting guy who I didn't, from the outside, you look at him and say, oh, okay, not sure what he's all about, but I know his work. And then you get to know him and, you know, just such a really amazing, creative, talented guy who doesn't hold back. He says says it like it is. And, and I really love that. He's not somebody that just runs their mouth and just says whatever. But, uh, yeah, he's he's pretty incredible. Okay, and how long did you work there, and what projects did you work on? So there, I worked. I worked at Tippett Studio for seven and a half years. So, upped it by another six months from, from the <laughs> previous one. I worked on let's see, Hellboy, the first Hellboy. That was pretty exciting. Not credited, but I, we did some work on one of the Matrix sequels, Matrix Revolutions, or whatever the the last one was. Twilight, the second Twilight, Twilight New Moon. Did you do the werewolves? We did the werewolves on Twilight. And in fact, the studio ended up doing the, the wolves for all of the remaining Twilight films. They became the wolf studio oh, for, cool. for, for the Twilight series, amongst other things. The studio was so small, but it generally worked on usually two films in parallel when you have know, large studios like Industrial Light Magic would you know work on 10, 15, whatever. So there was that. What specifically did you work on in those kind of movies? Well... At Tippett Studios, where I made a bit of a, a career transition, I was—I um, felt I had kind of reached the peak on the technology side of visual effects and wanted to do something more and different. So that's where I got my first opportunity to be a computer graphics supervisor. So I made that sort of transition. And that's the side of, or in the computer graphics supervisor role, is where you have a bit of the technology side, but you also have the creative direction as well so you work with all the key artists and the visual effects supervisor and basically kind of bridging the creative and technology sides and it was really exciting i I really enjoyed that because then it opened up more on the creative side as well that sounds really exciting what um what was after that then i'm asking you very chronologically (laughs) about your life i know (laughs) 
So, uh, yeah. Um, so I was at Tippett Studio for seven and a half years. And I think I was at a point where things were going well, I think. And, you know, it's a small studio, though. And I thought, hmm, I, I'm interested in travel. And I, I had some friends that were going to work in New Zealand for Peter Jackson's company and on the Lord of the Rings kind of films and so forth. And it was something I'd never done before. I enjoyed the stability of working for a studio, not moving around too much. But I thought, well, it would be interesting to kind of change locations, work for a different studio, things like that. So uh, one of the films that I worked on at Tippett Studio was Cloverfield, so the, the big monster that attacks New York City, if you remember that film. And we collaborated with a studio in London um, called Double Negative, and they were doing a lot of the destruction stuff, and we were doing all the creature stuff. So I got to know one of the guys who was essentially my counterpart, and I thought, oh, this seems like a... Um, studio that would be interesting to work for so there came a point where i just applied to them and thought hey you know i could come over to london london is an amazing city i really love and i could travel because you know i've got europe at my doorstep so i ended up getting a job with double negative and moving to london at that point what do you think it was about double negative well i i think the reason i chose double negative was specifically because i had had this collaboration with them i didn't know a huge amount about them other than you know the work they had done and the work we had collaborated on but um i i knew some of the other studios here i just wasn't as interested in them i think at the time and i think what really made everything come together is that they had just been awarded this massive film um and my skills were very uh suitable for that so uh i got invited to kind of come over and work for them and to kind of help get that one going and and they were basically going to wipe the slate clean as far as their um creature kind of process so i have an opportunity again leverage background especially working at tippet studio which is known for their creature animation to kind of help work with everyone to kind of build up that side in kind of a new way and um, for this big film and i know you've gotten a bit into directing short films since then yes yeah so i I've always been interested in doing a 48-hour film challenge. I just thought that would be really interesting. And I have a couple of friends here and that we finally agreed to just go for it. So I did the 48-hour sci-fi film challenge. So this is a 48-hour film challenge that is in specifically the sci-fi genre as opposed to other ones which could be various other genres. So got to do that. And I, I think that was a great way to start because you were so time constrained, obviously, and you just have to do a film start to end. It's a crash course. I think when you have other projects, it, it's, it can be easier to procrastinate or just to kind of wait for things to come together. Um, but when you're in a challenge, you're forced to come up with a solution. You're, you're forced to just, just get it done. Or you could just abandon it and not finish, but you know who would want to do that? So yeah, it was really, really fun. Um, I ended up doing more work on that film than I had intended because I had to shoot it. I was a cinematographer. I directed it. It was the story was my idea. Not not that I'm trying to be a, a you know megalomaniac want to do everything. Just <laughs> more of just how it, it worked out. You wrote it yourself. Well I the story is my idea, but the rules of the forty eight hour film challenge are that they give you a title, a prop, a line of dialogue, and you're meant to come up with the script on the day and everything else on the day. I mean, you can have actors and you can have locations and costumes ready, but that all is meant to come together. So I had these ideas that are just in my head, but I kind of left it to the actors to kind of improvise some of their dialogue or, or create their own dialogue. So they wrote their dialogue. I came up with a story. That 
really shows a lot of trust <laughs> in the people you were working with. I think I had far too much on my plate at that point anyway, so I didn't mind, you know, and yeah. maybe some of the lines I would have done differently if, if I were writing it, but hey, I, I did not have time. And I, I was quite happy with the way it turned out. I, I really enjoyed the process. So after you worked with um, Tippett, how long did you work for the next company for? So at, at double when I was in London, so yeah. that was the next company I was working at Double Negative. I worked for Double Negative, I think, for, again, it was seven, seven and a half years or something like that. It was somewhere around wow. that. Yeah. So I think each studio was approximately seven and a half years. You get the seven-year itch. Yeah. And it, it could have been that I was off slightly in the previous ones because they were all around six, seven years. So it's all a bit of a blur. But yes. So each studio was basically a long-term gig at each each studio, which is kind of unusual these days because a lot of people especially the artists tend to move from studio to studio based on the film you know they might work at a studio six months nine months sometimes um, and then move to the next studio where the next film is it's it's a lot more transient but you know I I was fortunate not to have to do that yeah um, and I think a lot of it had to do with because I had a bit of a different speciality and I was working a lot in the technology side as well Kind of jumping back and forth but when i think when you're on the technology side it's it's a bit more stable in the sense of that you're based at the studio more so than on the films itself you just you do work on the films but you're working for the studio on the films rather than being brought in for a specific film why did you decide to leave double negative i think i you know it was just it was that point where i i think that there's you know the seven year itch i don't know what it is it was at the point where you know i just felt felt like it had run its course mm. and you know, there were some things that were, you know, recent changes that just didn't really um, work for me. So I decided to work on an animated film, which I'd never done before. And that was quite interesting because, you know, I can't say it was like, oh, I'm going to work for Pixar in this amazing new film that everybody's going to love. It wasn't that situation, but it was a situation where I got to work on a film that was a sequel. You know, it's Sherlock Gnomes, the sequel to okay. Nothing Juliet. <laughs> for a French studio called Micros. It's part of Technicolor, which is a massive um, media company. And they had basically set up a studio in London to work on half the film, and the other half was being done at their studio in Paris. And I had the opportunity to work in both studios, so that the, the role I had was split between London and Paris, which that in itself was exciting to me because it was an opportunity to work in Paris, um, even though I still can't speak French, unfortunately. but. Uh, but I did very much get to kind of fall in love with Paris in some ways. I, it was a place that I just never really spent any time in. I wasn't sure I would like, and I knew the language barrier would be somewhat difficult. But um, I think I would alternate there maybe a week in London, maybe two weeks in London, then a week there and back and forth. So I got to spend some time there. I got to stay in different areas. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I uh, had a really good time. And, you know, the film work itself, it was an animated film I hadn't done before, so there were new challenges to that, which also made the work interesting. You know, again, working for a different studio, different techniques. <laughs> what were the main differences between working in visual effects and animation? Well, the the main difference being that in visual effects, you're, you're sort of constrained by what was photographed, the camera. So there's only so much that you're going to do because... It has to kind of be based on that or based on reality, even though live action visual effects films will have some sequences or shots that are entirely computer graphics that are meant to look real, but they still cut with the real footage and real actors and so forth. In an animated film, you're not constrained by any of it. You, It's pure fantasy, but at the same time, you don't want to go too wild because you could lose 
the audience in some ways. But I also like the fact that you can be really stylized. You know, animation is a great genre to just go really stylized. I think that's the most interesting stuff is it's not trying to look sort of photoreal, but it's just trying to do something interesting like that, um, the new newest Spider-Man film. Not not the film, but the animated one that has this sort of comic book kind of look to it, which is amazing. So I, I thought, oh, that's great. They're not just doing a computer graphic kind of animated film. They're actually creating some interesting style to it. And I, and I think that's... I'd like, love to see more of that. What is next for you? Hard to say. <laughs> well, the, it, from from a, a creative standpoint, I've been really interested in, you know, developing my own projects when I can, you know, very much the idea that they're independent and small, not necessarily going to pay the bills, but just more of creative expression. So I've been quite interested in getting back on the writing side and exploring the idea of writing a play. Um, and the thing that really interests me about that is because coming from a visual storytelling background, and even the writing I think is quite visual that I would do, uh, a play is an opportunity to really kind of learn dialogue-driven sort of writing, I guess, and maybe doing something with that. And I have some other films, ideas that I really want to develop as well. So that's kind of where I am. I, I do want to just do some of my own stuff um, and see, see where that takes me. Okay. And what advice would you give to people trying to get into the industry, whether they be in visual effects, animation, or even maybe as an actor? Because you must have worked with a lot of actors. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think that there's probably a couple things that I would say to somebody trying to break into the industry. And, and you know, the first one, which is very important, is, is the lesson that, you know, you can take from me is that you don't need a connection. You don't need necessarily. You don't necessarily need a connection. You don't need to kind of trick your way in. You don't need necessarily to go to this very expensive film school. You can learn from DVD extras and so forth. In fact, Paul Thomas Anderson, as uh, I don't know, many people know, I hope, as a, as a writer and director, he, he has a quote about, you know, how film school is, is useless and you should just, you can learn everything you need to learn from, from basically with director's commentaries. Now, I'm not saying I believe that 100%, but I'm, I do believe that you can get a lot out of that and that people should no matter what. So do that. I would say, you know, if you're into, if you're interested in that, do all those things that you can do. It doesn't take a lot of money. Just just learn as much as you can. And then, but also don't be afraid. Don't assume that people are going to reject you because you don't have certain experience or you don't look a certain way um, or anything like that, because you, you just don't know. And you can really kind of build up these barriers yourself that actually may not exist. Yes, was that one or two things? Something. Anyway, that, that, that sort of advice is what I would give people, I think, you know, just and just go for it. You know, there, there's no reason not to. If that, if that's where your passion is, I think, you know, that will truly shine through it. rather than if you're doing it just for ego purposes, don't bother. <laughs> but yeah. maybe a, if you have a bit of both, that's fine, I guess. But uh... <laughs> one of the things I've been asking people is what advice they'd give to them, their teenage selves. Yeah, it depends, I guess, at what time you broke into the industry. But you know, what advice would you give to your 13 or 16 year old self? The advice I would give when I was younger would be well don't know if it's advice but i would say pursue kind of you know you you're you're kind of filmmaking you know and just as a kid you know you can go out and film stuff you can make stuff all you know you think of it's a lot of filmmakers that you hear their stories and where like steven spielberg you know was making stuff in his backyard a lot of people do that and i did a little bit of that but i i think that nowadays you also have the opportunity to kind of do so much more because you have access to these tools and technologies that you just didn't have in the past. So I think that's pretty amazing. Um, and you can really 
go far with that and you could release on YouTube. You can do these different things that mm. you couldn't do before. So that advice wouldn't necessarily apply to me back as a child because those weren't options, but I would say that would be something now if, if I had somebody of the same age as a kid. Yeah, one of the things I haven't really asked you about is setbacks you faced or moments of self-doubt. Because I think that most people have a moment in their career where something happens, whether it be at an audition or I'm just speaking from personal experience now. (laughs) But there has been moments where something's just kind of cut you deep or hurt your feelings or something's gone so wrong that you kind of thought, you know, is this for me? What were some of the, the setbacks you faced in your career? And how did you deal with them? I think the setbacks that I faced in my career were probably more related to people than okay. anything else. <laughs> um, just people that, you know, would be in positions that I had to work with them or for them and that I might not particularly get along with. Yeah. Not saying it was always that way, but, you know, there, there was there's a few people there. But part of that, too, is, you know, saying I'm not going to let this person drive me away from what I love and what I know I can do and it's almost like I'm going to show you you know that 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 kind of thing where I think you can kind of turn that around and say okay I'm I'm going to you know maybe I can't control certain things and you can't control everything but I'm going to find a way out of this I'm going to find a way to kind of spin it my way or to kind of get out of the situation that isn't great for me you know so that could involve you know changing jobs but I'm not going to leave the industry or trying to find new people to kind of work with within the studio or or anything like that the you know the financial side has been interesting because it is you know especially now you know people work from film to film and you know you have to be able to kind of bridge those gaps and that's it's really quite difficult I think one of the things that at least sort of gave me a bit of extra motivation was not having a safety net hate to say so it's it's not you know there are people that have you know great families that can support them and nothing wrong with that I didn't so I it was sink or swim for me and that that provides I think an extra level of motivation that you can't really get any other way you know you're going to sink or you're going to swim and having that is a huge motivation because sometimes there isn't an alternative and you have to mm. make it work. So um, you have to find solutions and you you need something to push you rather than it's it's easy to be comfortable or it's easy to kind of fall back into that safety net. But you, you have to resist that sometimes and say, that's not the right answer to this. The right answer is, well, to find the answer rather than abandon the effort. You know, you, you don't want to give up. Yeah, that's really brave, though, because, you know, even I talked about this in the third episode with Carrie Little. And I was saying that in a way to be able to go for acting, I'm quite privileged because if worse comes to worse, I could move back to Ireland and live with my family and try and financially get on my feet for a while and either decide to come back or to get a normal job. But I'm not left in a, a kind of situation where it's sink or swim. There was a couple of my friends from Limerick that also wanted to be actors or actresses and they I was the only one that that actually moved over and in the end did it and we had all these grand plans but you know people just don't have the same safety blanket sometimes they didn't end up going for it very unfortunately so you're, you're saying that they didn't go for it because they felt like they didn't have that safety net and they, they they needed some that extra safety net to give them the confidence rather than going there first and then you know, yes. being worried about being out on the street, I guess. Or something yeah, like mainly that. financially, because if, if they hadn't met it, they would have ended up, you know, 
either being on the street or just not having anywhere to stay except well they could have stayed with me but not yeah. feeling comfortable enough to ask and then just the whole anxiety of it really yeah so then if you if you didn't have that safety blanket i think it's really brave to go for whatever you want to do in life well i i think there's yeah and i i think that a lot of people are like that you know or that's the reason that they don't go for um something that they maybe really love the idea of pursuing maybe you don't know if it'll work out or not but i i think people you know it is important to have some level of safety um because you don't want to put yourself in a, a huge risky situation where you'd be on the street or whatever but at the same time you, you you also need to kind of pursue your passions and your mm-hmm. dreams and, and not require a huge safety net, maybe a little one, just enough, the essential. Yeah, I think that would be so important. And I, I think for me, the thing is that it was, I wouldn't say easy, but I had motivation to get out on my own and do my thing because I, as much as I love my family, I, I wanted to be out on my own. The motivation was to go do my thing rather than to kick back at home and and figure things out because I I wasn't I wasn't happy in order to be happy I needed to do my own thing and that had to be out there it wasn't at home I I knew I would not be happy if I stayed home so that was a good enough motivation for me to get out there and then once you're out there you're like well safety net well I could I'm sure I could always go back home, but I know again, I knew that doesn't change the original idea that I was not happy and I wanted to pursue these things. How would that make it better by going back? I I don't think it would have. So just, just lots of extra motivation that I found based on my circumstances and kind of just my own interests and passions and and things that, you know, I, I wanted to explore the world and explore my own creativity and all of that and just figuring it out without necessarily having it all laid out in front of me but at the same time I, I i felt enough confidence in myself that i would be able to figure it out on a, on a completely lighter note <laughs> one of the things i've been asking people as well is have you seen graham norton i have seen graham norton a couple times what story would you tell on his red chair so the graham norton red chair thing i'm not sure i entirely understand it but it's it's like people come on and basically tell a story in whether or not he's impressed with it then he'll dump them if he's not impressed or something like that yeah i mean the whole idea of me asking is funny anecdotes i don't have a hidden you know <laughs> thing to <laughs> throw you uh, off I'm your chair around for this where, where, where's the trap door my anecdote would be i have an action figure not that i have an action figure that i bought but i mean there's an action figure of me oh do you want to know more i uh, do <laughs> i didn't know that so the uh <laughs> there's an action figure of me now it's a character I played in Star Wars Episode One. I, I had an opportunity to essentially be an extra. There's, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to overplay it. You know, I'm not, I'm not. Doing Why? How have we not the... talked about this yet? How has this not come up? Because it, it would be boastful, wouldn't it? There's some things that give you the right to boast, and being one of the Star Wars <laughs> movies is one. <laughs> well, anyway, but you know, the action figure. Back to that. So I, I was able to be an extra as one of the um, queens soldiers so queen amidala you know natalie portman her soldier foot soldier they had various different names so when we did it i think it had a name and then when the action figure came out it had a slightly different name i don't know what the actual name is i think it's nabu royal guard or something like that or Nab- nabu soldier something anyway i got to be one of those characters so i got to spend a day in the in the costume you know it was a really cool costume shooting stuff for the film and of course with star wars they make action figures of everything so 
one day the action figure of the character I played came out. Now I'm not the only guy, you know, because it's a bunch of us, but still that counts. That's right? so cool. That counts. I wonder how um, well the sales did on that. <laughs> Everybody that listens to the podcast, please buy this so that we can try and make a sequel well, based off that guide. Well, <laughs> I, I'm thinking that you can't even find them anymore because it's not like it was, you know, a Luke Skywalker, Anakin Skywalker, any of those sort of characters. He's just a soldier. But, you know, you, it's a you know, just item. fill out. Yeah, probably. I wonder if you're worth a couple of million now. I highly doubt that. But I, but I do have to say is when it... And in fact, they do re-release Star Wars figures all the time. But I have a feeling that they just didn't bother with that one. It, it probably is not a big seller. But when it did come out, I went to Toys R Us, you know, because it was the biggest toy store in the area. And I bought all of them. Oh, cool. Because why would you not? <laughs> yeah. Again, but all of them was seven. There were seven of them. Okay. I, I have them back in storage. Somewhere. I'd love if there and was I, ha- I do have one in London. Really? Just just to show. But uh, it's quite, quite fun. I really, uh, yeah. I thought that was an interesting kind of little anecdote. Because how many people have action figures of themselves from a film? Unless you're, of course, one of the big, big players. I was one of the small players. That's amazing. Oh, that's so cool. one day i wish to have an action figure (laughs) um lastly i wanted to ask where people can follow you if they want to keep up with your story are you on instagram or twitter i'm i'm most active on instagram i would say i i do post infrequently but Hmm. i'm probably most active on instagram i do have accounts all over the place but you you can follow me on twitter but you're not going to see anything from me on twitter so what's the point your handle is russell darling it's russell darling so i got to use my real name i don't have to put like russell darling 74 or something like that yeah it is Uh, a unique name though yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think that's that's the best place to follow me and and i'm really into photography not just kind of instagram photography so i'll occasionally post photos from film shoots that i've done like film still cameras and things like that or polaroids or mammography or any of those so thanks so much for coming in today i really appreciate it you're welcome, Kira. This this was fun, and and you didn't have a trap door, so I'm quite happy. Yeah, <laughs> there's little time now. <laughs>